All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks that we get to sit at your feet and hear from you, from your words that you wrote, that you preserved for us through the centuries. Lord, you're so good to us, and uh, you were good to us yesterday, and you're good to us today, and you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Lord, we just, we just thank you for who you are and for this word that you give us, and we pray that you'd have your way with us and that you guide us and lead us by your spirit, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I'm thinking about it, can I just um, do an awkward thing that you can't do in big churches, and that is ask girl for the remote thing, because I want to do the historical overview. Is that okay? Uh, Earl can do it. You can, huh? You want to do it now? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You want me to do it? Yeah. Big churches can't get away with this stuff, right? If they do, the pastor gets fired, Right? You gonna fire me? Sixteenth uh, of January, sanctity of life Sunday. All right. Um, big picture overview. Uh, Genesis chapter one, God created everything, right? So sometimes I'm gonna do big picture overview because sometimes we uh, we want to make sure we got the forest for the trees. Um, Adam sinned in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? And uh, that. Be- presented a cosmic problem that only God can fix, right? So God's going to bring a Messiah. His name is Jesus, and uh, uh, Jesus is going to be born. Uh, Jesus is going to be born uh, from what kind of nationality? Jewish, right? He'll be from the line of Abraham, and we trace it all down. And so a lot of what goes on in the Bible is sort of the history of these Jewish people. Is that fair? Jesus' family, we'll say, uh, even before Jesus came. And so we're, we find ourselves in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26. You can turn there if you haven't already. And um, uh, at this point in time, as we're dealing with the nation of, of Judah, the time after uh, King David's son Solomon, during his reign Rehoboam, the nation was split. There was the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes of what's called Israel, and the southern two tribes of what's called Judah. And by this point in, in the history, Israel has already been conquered. The northern kingdom has been conquered and carried off by the Assyrians about 150 years prior. And we find ourselves in the last few decades of the existence of the nation of Judah, right? Now, if you're going to watch a good, like, uh, suspense movie, right, and you know that like there's going to be a Messiah coming, and 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 yet you know we're about ready to destroy all of his predecessors. You might think, oh, I'm nervous, right? About that maybe the line to the Messiah is going to get lost. Well, of course that doesn't happen. So uh, it's all about the preservation of all that. But anyway, we find ourselves in the last few um, generations, if you will, last few few years prior to the final destruction of the nation of Judah by the Babylonians. They're going to be carried off into captivity for 70 years, but this is that time prior to that. The last good king was Josiah. Josiah had three sons, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And the reason I I keep referring back to this is because it seems like these guys are, it just seems back and forth and it can be a little bit confusing. So what happens is Josiah is the last good king and then his son Jehoahaz reigns for three months. He's carried off to Egypt in a, in a political power struggle, uh, is replaced by 
the next son, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim reigns for 11 years, and then he's carried off to Babylon, and Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah, is placed on the throne by the king of Babylon. He's there only for three months as well, and finally is replaced by Jehoiachin's uncle, Jehoiakim's brother, Zedekiah. And Zedekiah remains till the final destruction of the nation of Judah in 586 B.C. The thing I want us to point out here is the reason I, I keep referencing this is Jeremiah does not write chronologically. Ancient literature is often not written chronological. And so uh, we're going to go back and forth a little bit here between the reign of Jehoiakim and the reign of Zedekiah, just for our purposes today. And so um, I think that's all I want to say about that. So Jehoah has three months, Jehoiakim 11 years, Jehoiachin then again three months, and Zedekiah 11 years, if that helps you remember. Okay? Fair enough? Clear as mud? Okay. You think, boy, glad I got that big picture. Can you give me a little small picture for a minute? Okay. So um, chapter 26, it seems like as we're going into these chapters, we read a lot about judgment. We read a lot about punishment of sin. We read a lot about stuff that we don't like to hear about, okay? And sometimes we think God is mad, or we think that the book of Jeremiah or the Old Testament in general is a book of great judgment. And can I just encourage us to kind of rewind that a little bit in our minds? The book of Jeremiah is about God's grace. Because judgment is real, like it or not. Like it or not, there's a consequence of sin. There has to be a price paid for sin. In our, in our understanding of it, the price was the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Praise the Lord, right? But even in terms of, of from a historical standpoint, there has to be a judgment for sin. What we see in the book of Jeremiah is warning, warning, warning. And warning is a picture of God's grace. And so really, the book of Jeremiah is a lot of chapters of warning because God is full of love and full of grace and wants to spare his people the judgment that's inevitable if they don't repent. So that's the place that we find ourselves in chapter 26, verse 1, which says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, so you saw now where you can kind of place that in your mind, this word came from the Lord saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house, and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. So, this is in the beginning of Jehoiakim, probably around 609 B.C. Now, there's going to be three conquests of Judah by the Babylonians, if you care about the dates. The first one is in 605 B.C., Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and several others are taken off captive into Babylon, right? That's 605 B.C. And then in 597 B.C. is uh, another group carried off. That's when Jehoiachin becomes king. And then uh, in 586 is the final uh, captivity. It's the final destruction. That's when they surround Jerusalem for a year and a half, and they finally conquer it, and it's, and it's devastating, and they carry off all the rest of the artifacts of the temple. Um, but along the way, there's three different times, and that 
relates, we'll talk about that as we go through here. But keep in mind, there's three different times. And so right now what we find is really early, beginning of Jehoiakim. So remember, Jehoahaz, after Josiah, only reigned for three months. So the beginning of Jehoiakim is very early in that historical uh, sequence. So around 609. And Jeremiah is told during this time to go speak at the temple. The temple is where everybody would come and hang out. Everybody. And, you know, we don't even really have a comparable thing, you know, in our community. Walmart's the closest thing we have. (laughs) Right? Well, in their day, everybody came in and out of the front door of the temple. And so it would have been very uh, populated. There would have been a large crowd. And that's where God tells Jeremiah to go and, and to speak. And I want to tell you what's underlined here in my Bible. Do not diminish a word. This is going to be kind of a, maybe a theme, a little subplot of what I want to talk about today. And that is, it's tremendously tempting to to preach peace and prosperity, everything's good, you're going to be all right, don't you worry, you just keep doing what you're doing, you don't need to repent of anything, because, you know, that might, you know, if I tell you that you need to repent of your sin, then, you know, that is sort of offensive to you in some way, and, and, and all of that, but the reality is, we need to get right, and sometimes that needs, you know, parents, right, do your kids ever need to be corrected? Does that mean you don't love them? Does that mean, like, Anything other than you do love them, you want to set them straight. And uh, that doesn't mean anything other than you love your children. And so uh, the reality is there's a tremendous temptation amongst preachers, prophets in those days, preachers today, and every time in between to, if you will, if you carry that, that analogy, there's tremendous temptation to spoil the kids. Tell them, hey, you're all right. You just keep doing whatever that works for you, right? Try that at home, parents. Hey, whatever you think you want to do, just do more of it, right? It'd be chaotic, right? And so uh, God tells Jeremiah, do not diminish a word. Do not diminish a word. Verse 3. Perhaps, he says, everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. Period, dear. Because of the evil of their doings. Perhaps everyone will hear and listen and repent, turn from their evil way, and then I can relent on the punishment that's to come. Now, this does not in any way, shape, or form take away from the sovereignty of God. God is in control. God knows all things, right? Sometimes, I mean, it's hard because we read with human minds words on a page that were written by God, but we still have to kind of keep in mind God's perspective because He's the one that spoke these words. But in our understanding, it seems like, "Mm, if I repent, God's going to change His mind. Well, the reality is God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. But God knows that these people will not repent. And so he gives them opportunity even though he knows that they won't repent, which might make you say, why does God do that? 
because of his great love and mercy. He's going to give everyone opportunity to repent. And yet, because he knows all things, he knows who's going to and who's not going to. And that kind of tweaks our brains a little bit, to be honest. But he says, give them a chance. Maybe they will repent. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord. This is the message that God wants Jeremiah to say. Thus says the Lord. And notice the authoritative nature of his message. Thus says the Lord. If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. And so once you see here, Keep in mind, the Jewish people at this point in their history, they had the Old Testament law. They had, this, they had the, the words of Moses. They had the law of Moses. They had, uh, you know, they had the early writings. And so they, in a sense, had the Old Testament just like we do. And I want you to see, if you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. Deuteronomy chapter 28. These words would have been in their Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse 15 says, But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then he goes for the rest of chapter 28, and he describes in great detail, honestly, what's going to happen if they refuse to obey the Lord, the Lord and his words. And so what we have, back to Jeremiah, I won't read through all of Deuteronomy 28. At the time of the writing of Jeremiah, the nation has forsaken the Lord. They've traded worship of the Lord in for worship of idols. They're blatantly rejecting everything in the law of Moses. And yet that's in their Bible. So they're responsible for that information that's been handed down to them through the generations. Just like we're responsible as Christians because we have the Bible. So they have the Bible. They also have history, right? So much of what we can learn is from history, even biblical history and even secular history. We can learn from history. We can learn from the pages of Scripture. We can learn from history itself. Sometimes we can learn from those who've gone before us. You know, here in Jeremiah, he says, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you've not heeded. So they have the word. They have their history. They have their prophets that have spoken to them before. Does God give opportunity to repent? Does God love to warn his children? Yes, he does. If danger's coming, God warns his children. If danger's coming, you know, you've heard me say this, you know, you've heard us say before, this is a maybe it's a simple example, but if a tornado is coming, and I know it, and it's going to touch down right here, what's the most unloving thing I could do? Keep talking, tell you, hey, you're good. Life's good. You're good. I affirm what you're doing, right? What's the most loving thing I could do? Say, get out of here, right? Emphatically. That'd be the most loving thing I could say. 
So judgment is coming. God knows it's coming. Jeremiah knows it's coming. And he's doing the loving thing by saying, you know what? If you don't adhere to the Old Testament law, if you don't adhere to what the prophets have said in affirming the Old Testament law, in calling you to repentance, if you don't take the heed, heed the warnings of history, then judgment's coming. In this case, the specific history is, he says, I will make this house like Shiloh. Now, if you're a history buff, an Old Testament history buff, you know that uh, Shiloh is when, you know, when they left Egypt, when the Jewish people came out of Egypt, right, under Pharaoh, and they were wandering in the desert for, for 40 years, and they carried around sort of the portable tabernacle, right? And then when they came into the promised land under the time of, of Joshua, uh, they needed to plant that tabernacle somewhere. They planted it in Shiloh, Joshua chapter 18. And then uh, during the time of, jo- of Joshua, it was there. And then during the time of the judges came after Joshua, it was there. And then uh, sort of toward the end of the time of the judges, you may recall early in 1 Samuel, there was a guy named Eli. He was the priest and his sons were the priests and they were evil. And Eli did not basically restrain them. Uh, and they were evil. They were they were wicked, and part of the punishment of all of that was uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, basically the Philistines came. They destroyed, the, they destroyed all of that. They destroyed Shiloh, made a mess of it, and stole the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so um, God's just saying through Jeremiah here, you know what, the same thing that happened to Shiloh could happen to you. And here's, a sub, here's another subplot, if you will. As it relates to the Jewish people, to Jerusalem, I think it relates to us, and it's this. And this is a message that I think we need to, again, if we're loving, I think we need to say very loud and clear. And that is there's a mentality sometimes that happens, it certainly would have been uh, applicable to the Jewish people at this point in their history, that they would say, you know what, you can't touch us. We are people, Right? Our ancestors marched around Jericho seven times and the walls came crashing down, right? Who's on our side? God's on our side. You can't touch us. Babylonians, Shmabalonians, we don't care, right? God's on our side. Make sense? Sort of, until you reject the word of the Lord, right? Does that seem relevant at all today to anybody? right? Like, God shed His grace on me. I know I've brought this up a few times lately because we're talking about, uh, frankly, a very parallel situation. A very parallel situation. God has blessed America. And so I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a temptation. You know, we don't study history very well, so we don't know the difference between 200 years and 2,000 years, Right? We feel like we're the Roman Empire that's invincible, right? And we may very well be like the Roman Empire, right? But we kind of think if we're not, if, if we're really honest with ourselves, we kind of think we're invincible because, as Christians, I'm saying now, we kind of think we're invincible because we are a Christian nation. And God established us as a Christian nation, and so therefore we're invincible, and so we can do whatever we want because we're invincible, just like the Jewish people were thinking at this time. I think it, it's, it's almost surreal to me, the parallels. 
the parallels. Proverbs says this. Proverbs 14.34 Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people, even Americans. You know, patriotism, I'm all about patriotism. I thank God for those that have, that have gone before us and have allowed us to live. They've been used by God so that we can live in the nation we live in today. Super glad for those people. I'm glad for our leaders that we have today, right? Peter tells uh, in his letter to honor the king uh, when Nero was the king, right? Nero was evil. He was off the graph evil, right? And so if we, you know, in whatever political cycle you're in, if you don't like your leader, we should still honor the leader or leaders, right? But the point is, righteousness is what exalts a nation. When God shed his grace on thee and established this nation, this was God choosing to bless a largely obedient people. But sin is a reproach to any people. And so we're not entitled to any kind of uh, uh, invincible nation. We're not entitled to any kind of particular treatment based on our past history if we choose to reject God today. That's the place the Israelites found, found them in. They thought they were, they thought they were you know, they couldn't, be, they couldn't be penetrated. But what, what spoke against that? God's word spoke against that. Deuteronomy 28. God's prophets spoke against that repeatedly. God's history spoke against that. In the early days, there at Shiloh, those people, same deal. They thought they were invincible. The Philistines, they can't touch us because God is on our side. Guess what the Philistines did? They thrashed them, right? And so we see from biblical history, this plays out over and over again. And so it's frankly very tangible to us today. Verse 7, so the priests and the prophets, these are the religious people, by the way, who just heard Jeremiah preach. And all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, you will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Don't you love this? Isn't there something deep in our subconscious, it is in mine, that says, you know, if I'm faithful to the Lord, and if I do what He says, and if I speak His words, frankly, I'm this way, and if I speak His words publicly, and if I'm honest to the Scripture, then what I get in return is everybody says, you're awesome right? Isn't that what we want? We want everybody to like us and say, you're awesome, right? And, and as good Christians, the way we get a you're awesome is we preach the Word. Is that how it works? What am I? Thank you. See, that's how it works. <laughs> no, it doesn't always work that way. 
It does not always work that way. It didn't work that way for Jeremiah. It honestly will not work necessarily for us. And please notice this. Who are we talking about that wants to kill Jeremiah for speaking honestly? The religious people. The priests and the prophets and all the people at the temple. The religious people want to kill Jeremiah. Why? Because he spoke the truth. Well, that was the Old Testament days. What about, what about these days? 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Is that all warm and fuzzy? Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. That's not all warm and fuzzy, but it's the truth because it's the word. For the time will come, and I believe that time is here, when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What do we do? We preach the word. And it's not just me. It's all of us. We preach the word. We do it faithfully. We do it graciously, right? And believe me, I've had to learn this over the years, right? There's a long time in my life where I thought, if I just yell loud enough, you'll get it. <laughs> and if you don't get it, and I punch you in the nose and then yell at you loud enough, then you'll get it, right? That's not how it works, right? What we do is we faithfully preach the word. We convince, we rebuke, we exhort with all long-suffering, and then we let God deal with the, with the results, but it may be that it leaves us uh, with people saying things other than, you're awesome. That's just the reality. That was Jeremiah's reality. It may be our reality. And we need to be okay with that. When the princes, verse 10, now when the princes of Judah heard these things, so the princes would be probably in this context as contrasted to the priests and the prophets. Now we're talking about sort of the secular leaders of Judah. So there's religious leaders and the secular leaders by this time. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the princes and the, and the prophets spoke to all the princes, I'm sorry, the priests and the prophets spoke to all the princes and all the people saying, this man deserves to die. He's prophesied against this city as you have heard with your ears. It reminds me, frankly, of uh, Jesus' trial, right? The Jewish leaders, the religious people, are taking the case to Pilate, the secular guy who doesn't give a rip about their Jewish tradition or their Jewish customs or their Jewish law. And now the religious people are making the case to the civic leaders, this guy deserves to die. And so it's a very similar sort of pattern, if you will. And then Jeremiah spoke to the civic leader, the princes, and all the people, saying, I'm just doing my thing. The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you've heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways. So Jeremiah doesn't waste opportunity to preach to the civic leaders as well. Amend your ways also, by the way, he says. And obey the voice 
amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God, then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. What's Jeremiah telling the people to do? Repent. Repent. It's a simple message. And as for me, he said, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good, to me, good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you'll surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its inhabitants. For truly, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. You've got to love the heart of Jeremiah, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says this. Paul tells the Corinthians, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now there's a mouthful in that. I want to read it again. Do you not know that your body, this thing that I call me, is actually the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own. This thing I call me is not owned by me. This thing that I call me is actually, its, it's primary purpose is that this thing I call me is the house of the Holy Spirit. Right? And the Holy Spirit owns this thing I call me. Okay? So, this Holy Spirit who is from God, and I am not my own because I was bought at a price. What was the price? Jesus Christ. Hanging on a cross. A tremendous price to pay for this thing I call me. Isn't that crazy? You know, I think this thing called me is pretty valuable, right? We all think our thing that we call me is pretty valuable. But even at that, if you said, is that thing called, called you like worth God coming in human form, living a sinless life, and then dying on a cross, a brutal, brutal, agonizing death? Is that the value, the price of that thing you call me? I'd say, I don't think so. But God did. You're bought at a price. And God places that level of value on each and every one of us. That's crazy in itself. But as a result of that, He owns us. He bought us. This thing I call me is really just God's real estate right? God bought me like a piece of real estate to house His Holy Spirit, and therefore I no longer own me. Well, if I no longer own me, I don't control my destiny. I really don't make my decisions. I'm certainly not entitled to anything. I don't feel like I deserve anything. I don't deserve to be I don't deserve for all you guys to say I'm awesome because I speak the truth. I'm really just uh, 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 on loan from him who owes me, who owns me. I'm on loan from him who owns me so I can spend a few decades 
on this earth serving the one that owns me. So if I have that, I mean, that, that tweaks our brains a little bit, right? But if I have that attitude and you want to kill me, then I can talk like Jeremiah and say, do what you want. But let me just say, if you do put me to death, you're going to bring innocent blood on yourselves because I am innocent in this situation. And you're going to bring innocent blood on this city and on its inhabitants for truly the Lord has sent me to speak to, all the, to you all these words in your hearing. You can kill me if you want, but do you really want to do that? Right? I mean, what kind of person can look death in the eye like that? The person who realizes that he's not his own, he was bought at a price, and God is in control of all things, including his own life. Right? I love the heart of Jeremiah because he reminds us that God is in control. We don't own our lives. And if we recognize that we don't own our lives, it totally changes our perspective. Right? Well, I was really hoping it would work out like this. Well, God's in control. And just for the record, if it seems unsettling to you for me to say you're not in control, let me just tell you, God will do a better job of running your life than you will. I can tell you that from experience. God will do a better job of running your life than you will. If you want to preserve your own interests, you can't do it as well as God does. And so every time there's a disappointment or you feel like, oh man, I would have done it this way, or I can't believe, you know, I feel like God let me down because I wanted, I wanted to go east and God took me west, and all I can say is, life is better in the west. That's a promise from the pages of Scripture. The life surrendered to God is not necessarily what we signed up for. It's not necessarily full of all of our hopes and dreams, but it is the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John chapter 10. I know it from experience. I can tell you this. The abundant life is way better than the self-directed life. Big time. So the princes, the civic leaders, and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, the religious leaders, this man doesn't deserve to die, for he's spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And then certain of the elders, now the old guys rise up, so we've got these different subgroups of people, right? And just, let me just say, the elders, I think these guys are like, I'm not sure what the biblical, you know, how it breaks down, but I'm thinking they're at least 58, because they're full of wisdom. They stand up, they're awesome, that's right. (laughs) These awesome, godly, wise, white-headed elders stand up. And spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth, this is the Micah we know from the book of Micah, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion, that's Jerusalem, shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap, uh, heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. And that's what Micah said during the reign of Hezekiah, which was about 150 years before this. And so these elders, they said, did Hezekiah, you know, when Micah spoke those words, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all of Judah, 
ever put him to death? It's a great question. It's a great question. They just studied their own history and their own prophets. Did they put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing a great evil against ourselves. So just briefly rewind the history. During those days of Hezekiah, Micah comes and he says, hey, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, right? And there, was other th- there were other things going on. The Assyrians had just knocked out the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is all walled up in Jerusalem, and it looks, looks scary for him. Isaiah the prophet also prophesied to him and, and kind of gave him a word of encouragement and all this, and you can study the history. And the bottom line is Hezekiah and the people repented before the Lord. And they sought the Lord, and they said, Lord, please save us. And at that time, the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by an army of Assyrians. They can't go in or come out. Surrounded by an army of Assyrians. It was hopeless. They were up against the wall, etc., etc., etc. What happens? An angel comes down and kills 285,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. 285,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. Guess who won? God won, right? And so what the elders are saying here is that, hey, remember when Micah prophesied and, and, you know, the way it worked that time was they didn't put Hezekiah to death. They just, or Hezekiah, I'm sorry, Hezekiah, the civic leader, didn't put Micah to death. They sought the Lord and the Lord delivered. So maybe that's how it ought to work out. And now there was also a man who prophesied, verse 20, in the name of the Lord, Urijah, the son of Shemaiah of Kirjath-Jerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all, with all his mighty men and all his princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Urijah heard it, he was afraid and fled and went to Egypt. Then Jehoiakim the king, of, the king sent men to Egypt, Elnathan the son of Ekbor, and other men who went with him to Egypt. And they brought Urijah from Egypt and brought him to Jehoiakim the king, who killed him with the sword, and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. And so, you know, this is just a a very real graphic example that sometimes there are martyrs for the Lord. Sometimes the Lord rescues people, saves them. Sometimes he kills the Assyrian soldiers. And sometimes the prophet speaks the word. People don't say he's awesome. In fact, they do kill him. And this guy, Urijah, he goes down as a winner in the pages of history. This guy Jehoiakim, who had him killed, not so much, right? Jehoiakim is a loser in the body in the in the in the pages of Scripture. Nevertheless, the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. So uh, Jeremiah was rescued from certain destruction. Okay. So in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So again, we see the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the same time period that uh, chapter 26 was written in. So all this is kind of the same time period. So word of the Lord comes again. Thus says the Lord to me, make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon, by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, the king of Judah. And so um, 
you recall, this is now early in Jehoiakim's reign, right? During this time, there's a power struggle. Babylon, Babylon is not the dominant power by this time, right? There's this jockeying between everybody. Egypt is still kind of a player, and all these other nations are players. And so, again, we get a lesson here. What's tempting sometimes when it seems like, I'm not sure where all the pieces are lining up, what do we tend to do? We tend to look to world, our worldly neighbors, our worldly resources. We want to get you know, all of our experts lined up from a, from a secular or a worldly standpoint to fight against a common enemy. It's a common strategy, right, from throughout history. And so uh, the temptation would be for everybody to pool the resources against uh, what appears to be the rising power, which is Babylon. But God says, you know what? those guys are all going to go down. The Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the people of Tyre, the people of Sidon, and Zedekiah, king of Judah. And command them to say to their masters, thus says the Lord of hosts, the, king, the God of Israel, thus, says, thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground by my great power, by my outstretched arm, and I have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. I decide who's going to be the dominant force. And now I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. And it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. And so the reality is there's no power struggle. God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. And in this case, he warns even these nations to submit to the, his direction and serve Babylon. Therefore, do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will, set them, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. So he's saying, you know, there's all those prophets now that are prophesying to you, you know, peace and good and everything like this, and we're not going to serve the king of Babylon. Don't believe them. They're liars. And so as we, just for the next few minutes, as we wind down, there's kind of this now theme that he's moving into of uh, a true prophet and a false prophet. And again, it begs the question in our day, is there a lot of noise out there? A lot of opinions? right? Can you get a variety of opinions on the internet? Can you get a false prophet or two on the internet? You know what Abraham Lincoln said. What did Abraham Lincoln say? You can't believe everything you read on the internet, right? So don't believe everything you read on the internet. Just believe some of it. <laughs> and you figure out which is which, right? That's a challenge in life, is it not? It was a challenge for the people in Jeremiah's day, right? Jeremiah is saying one thing. These other guys are saying a completely opposite thing. Who do I believe? I mean, that's a dilemma we face. Probably like never before, right? 
If, I don't, if, if, if you say something that I, that I uh, disagree with, I can say you're an idiot, right? I can call it misinformation, right? I can belittle you. I can do lots of techniques to elevate my opinion and to downgrade your opinion if I want to on the internet, right? And this is a common thing. It was going on then. It's nothing new. They didn't have the internet, but they still had the problem, right? And so we need discernment. We need discernment. And so he says, verse 12, I also spoke to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now, this is where I say Jeremiah kind of jumps, okay? So now he went from the time of Jehoiakim to the time of Zedekiah. And what is the, his point in all that is, I gave the same message for decades, right? So the time of Zedekiah would have been many years after, probably about a dozen years after this time that we read about just now in, in Jehoiakim. But his point is, for a dozen years, I'm saying the same message. So he's saying, I also spoke to Zedekiah, the same thing, according to all these words, saying, bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die? So Jeremiah was warning these people for a dozen years that Babylon is going to be the one to come and take over if you'll just surrender to him, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, you'll live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against this, the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon. For I, they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, says the Lord. Yet they prophesy a lie in my name, that I may drive you out, and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. So you see this? So... Um, This is the same message during the time of Zedekiah that he was preaching during the time of Jehoiakim. God's going to raise up Babylon. Also, I spoke to the priests and to all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. Now, this is interesting. So you've got to kind of, again, know the historical timeline a little bit here. He said, I spoke to the priests and to the people during the time of Zedekiah. So during the time of Zedekiah, by now, the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, has been conquered twice by Babylonians, okay? And they weren't really, like, completely destroyed until the third time. So it's kind of like they lost two battles to Babylon, and in each of those times, each of those times, some of the captives were carried away and some of the artifacts of the temple were carried off, okay? They had a high value on, you know, their furnishings in the temple and all that. And so some of those things have been carried off. So you've got to picture this scene. Number one, you've got the Old Testament law. Number two, you've got the prophets. Number two, you've got the history. And now you've got the recent history. So Jeremiah now, for probably over 20 years by this time, has been saying, you need to repent, Babylon's going to take over. And even at this point that we're reading about in chapter 27, Babylon has conquered us twice. And what are the false prophets saying? 
Hey, we're good. They're still saying the same thing. Hey, we're good. And those things that were carried off to Babylon the first two times, we're going to get them back. That's crazy. So you got the Old Testament law, you got the prophets, and now you've even got, you've even got recent history from your own generation. And, there's, and they're totally uh, ignoring, really, the, the data points that they have, right? What happens if there's false prophecy on the Internet? It ignores, oftentimes, well, it ignores, the false prophecy on the Internet ignores the Word of God. Often ignores biblical truth, ignores biblical history, and might even ignore our own data points. I see stuff, honestly, well, I won't go off on it. <laughs> There's such a neglect of obvious data points at ver- on, these, on various things, uh, it's, it's, it's just nuts, okay? And so that's nothing unique to our day. Uh, basically, they can say, yep, yeah, I know Babylon's conquered us twice, but uh, there's no way they'll do it a third time. Really? Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should the city be laid waste? But if they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord in the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem do not go to Babylon. If they're right, more power to them. Let them pray. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts, is concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried away Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon and all the nobles of, the Judah, of Judah and Jerusalem. So he's saying during that second conquest, when Nebuchadnezzar took off uh, Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, otherwise known as Jeconiah, that second conquest, when, ba- when the Babylonians took him off and took off a bunch of their um, the gold vessels and all that, the stuff that remained that he didn't quite take, yes, thus says the Lord of, God, of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and Jerusalem, they shall be carried off to Babylon. And there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. And so uh, the bottom line is even those remaining vessels are going to be taken away and destroyed. Or not destroyed, but taken away to Babylon and brought back 70 years later. We'll read chapter 20, huh? We'll read chapter 28 next week. Fair enough? God's Word is God's Word. Man's Word is man's Word. Fair enough? We are not our own person. We don't control our own destiny. The best thing we can do is surrender to God. To find what is God doing in my life. We should always ask the question, what is God doing? 
and I want to join in with what God is doing, right? You think just, just simple decisions we make in life. We make it based on a whole variety of things. Oftentimes, I think of it kind of on, if you will, on three levels. Just maybe more than you want to hear. By, this, by the time I get done with this, you'll say, I wish we had just read tw- chapter 28. One, dis- one way we make a decision is, I'm going to make a decision, and if I go this way, I'm going to get this result, and if I go this way, I'm going to get that result. I like this result, so I'm going to go, dis- go make the decision to go this way. That's often how we make a decision, right? It's reasonable, but can I suggest it's not the best way? Another way to make a decision is, as best as I can discern, this is the right thing to do, and this is not the right thing to do. So I think I'll do this thing, even though I don't know how it's going to turn out. There may be consequences. There's a lot of uncertainty at the end of this road. And I'm not sure how that will work out and how that relationship will work out and all that. But I think it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to go that way. Can I suggest that's better than scenario A? Can I suggest there's an even better way? And that is to ask the question, what does God want me to do? Okay, make sense? Scenario A, what would produce the result I want? Scenario B, what do I think is the right thing to do? Scenario C, even better, what does God want me to do? Well, you say, God doesn't speak to me audibly. Well, a couple things. Number one, maybe you ought to sit still a little bit and listen. Number two, maybe you ought to know his word. Number three, maybe you ought to know his character. And I believe he is faithful to guide us through this life. And as we do that, we might find ourselves in a time that's every bit as chaotic as the time Jeremiah lived in. But I love this. I know you've heard it before. I'll keep saying it. When Jesus was around, he said, who do people say that I am? Oh, some say... John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. There are people on earth when Jesus was alive that looked at him and listened to him and kind of they thought, that guy reminds me of Jeremiah. Can you get anything better than that on your tombstone? Right? I mean, I'd love for you guys to say I'm awesome, right? But what I'd really love on my tombstone would be, he reminded me of Jesus. Would that be cool? That'd be cool. So, no matter how chaotic things seem, no matter how much they want to kill you, do the thing that God tells you to do. And I can guarantee you, you'll find yourself blessed in 2022. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you that your word is so relevant to us now as it was to Jeremiah then. Lord, we thank you that you're in control of 
what seems like chaos from an earthly standpoint. We thank you that you bought our lives. You considered us valuable enough that you wanted to have a relationship with us enough that you paid the ultimate price to have fellowship with us. So Lord, help us to respond with lives of gratitude. And help us along the way to learn how to discern your voice. As you said there in John, my sheep know my voice. Lord, help us to be those kind of sheep that follow you accordingly. So please have your way with us. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.